Let's read the scripture this morning. If you have your Bible, would you please open it to Exodus 17, beginning at verse 8. And I'll have Bill come up and read the scripture. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are going through the book of Exodus. Been with us our 10th week, two and a half months in the book of Exodus. We're especially going to focus on the first half. So we're actually kind of approaching the end of the beginning, beginning of the end. I don't know. Um, We're not going to go through the second half of the book as carefully as we've gone through the first half. We'll talk about why later. And that's sort of where they are in the uh, travels. They're kind of at the end of the beginning. They've left Egypt uh, after enslavement, and the tribes uh, of Israel have seen God's miraculous hand, the plagues, Passover, uh, through the Red Sea. And now they've been some weeks or months out in the wilderness, and they're right at the foot of Mount Sinai, where they're going to get the law, where they, we've talked about the way this travel in the wilderness shapes the people of Israel and why that is. And so we have two more incidents before they reach Mount Sinai and the pivotal event in the life of Israel of receiving the law. We'll talk about that beginning next week. I want to talk about these last two events, though, because they're really important. God is shaping shaping his people to be promised land ready. The wilderness is a time for them to see what what are their hearts like. God didn't need them in the wilderness for his own sake. It was for their sake. And so you think, well, why does God turn me to the right or to the left? Seems like the shortest route is just going right to the promised land. God knew they weren't ready. And so in his mercy, he takes them and he begins to teach them how to depend on him. And how to see their daily bread taken care of. Because if you don't know that, see, manna stops when you get into the wilderness. Manna is available, I mean, when you get out of the wilderness. Manna is only available in the wilderness. In the promised land, you, you do your own food. So you need to know how to trust God for that. And how to operate in his gifts and in what he's given you. So this is really merciful training. We've talked about the way we see the Israelites aren't ready because as their basic needs aren't being met for food and water, 
they don't seem to be learning yet that, okay, God is our provider. They keep looking at Moses. Moses, why did you lead us out here to kill us? And Moses is trying to say, talk to God about it. And again, for us, just a takeaway for us, when you feel like, man, my needs are not being met, first, let's try to go to God rather than blaming our circumstances, other people, situations. God, where are we in this? Where are you in this situation? So the last story, they're at a camp called Rephidim, which is near Mount Sinai. It's a just probably a little enclave. Maybe there was a water there, some reason to stop there. Uh, well, there was water coming out of a rock, but they they uh, had a reason to camp there for some period of time. And we have we left last week as uh, Moses strikes a rock that the spirit of the Lord was on, and out of it gushes rivers of living water, or rivers of water for them to drink. At that spot, there's a nomadic tribe that probably sort of was like the gang in that area, and he didn't mess, and they attack Israel. All we see is in verse 8, Amalek, the Amalekites, from Amalek is a descendant of Esau, and his tribe, the Amalekites, uh, come and fight with Israel, Rephidim. We don't know any more than that. So here's the story. There's a battle going on. Moses turns to Joshua, introduction to Joshua, going to be a big character, right? This is the first time we hear about Joshua. And so he's clearly a general military leader. And he says, choose some men, go fight. Sounds good. They're fight. They're, they've attacked us. We need to do that. So some men are chosen and they go to fight. And interestingly enough, that's kind of the last we hear of the battle until the very end of the story where it says, and they won the battle. The rest of the battle, our eyes are taken somewhere else. Moses says in verse 9, tomorrow I will stand on the top of a hill. We assume it overlooks the battlefield to some extent that they can see it. I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. All right, remember the staff has been coming up over and over and over again. I've been emphasizing that we see, if you haven't read Exodus and noticed that this rod goes with them everywhere and pays a pivotal role, please, Get nothing else out of the last 10 weeks. Remember the rod, the staff of God. It shows up over and over and over again. It is a living symbol that God is with them. It is a, it is a reminder. It is a, a visual reminder that they are in this with God. So Moses says, I'm going to go and raise it up on the top of this hill with the staff in my hand. Joshua does what Moses tells him to do, and he fights with Amalek. Moses, along with two others, his brother Aaron and and a man named Hur, went up to the top of the hill. This is a fascinating verse. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. There's a lot. If you read commentaries about this, there's a lot on why that is. He was praying. there's, There's a lot of symbolism. The Bible doesn't seem to tell us. Maybe the people that read this knew why it There's a lot of interesting things you could say about it, and maybe they're true, but the Bible doesn't seem to say, because when he raised his hand up, he was in prayer. Let's not focus on what the Bible doesn't say. Let's look at what it does say and where, where our attention is. What we know is, when he raises his hand up, Israel prevailed. When he lowers his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands 
grew tired. They take a stone and they put it under him. So they, while his hands are up, I guess they, they let him sit on a stone because he's getting tired. He sits on it. Remember, he's in his 80s at this point, so God bless him. I, I need to sit down. When Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on each side, and the one on one side and one on the other, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And then we come back to the battle, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. I just want to make a couple of comments, and I'm just going to put the Holy Spirit quicken to you how this relates to you. But here's what I think is interesting. Where's our attention in this story? Is it on the battle? No. There's There's a quick verse that Joshua goes off to fight, and a quick verse at the bottom that Joshua won. The entire focus is not on what's happening, and arguably what's really going to affect Israel, right? From a human perspective, which is more important, that a, a nomadic tribe that's probably more powerful and more skilled in war than Israel is trying to wipe them out, or that a guy on a hill is standing up there with a, with a uh, rod, standing up with his rod up in the air. From a human perspective, I, I think we would all agree, well, we're really, the real business is happening on the battlefield, right? But look where the Bible's focus is. The Bible says, What's really happening is up on the hillside with an old man with a stick in his hand. That's where the real business is happening. The piece of wood that keeps appearing, representing the presence of God, maybe meaning a lot of other things, I don't know. But what I know is, is that the battle is won at the point, the tip of the spear almost, that where that rod is being lifted, where God is being exalted, where the focus is on God. And, you know, the battles for us, it's not warfare in the literal sense of warfare, but that the New Testament clearly says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And guys, if you don't think you're in a war for your spirit, for your family, in a culture that's not thinking that God is you know, something to be embraced and, and the truths of God. I, I think we need to be clear. We are. And our focus can be on the battlefield and on the individual. And not that they're not important. Joshua, men were chosen. They fought the battle. There's a human responsibility in this. It's not that they could just lift up the... He, God could have just said, let's just lift up the rod and I'll destroy them. He did it with Egypt, right? The rod is lifted up. When he's uh, in the hail and um, which one, which other one was it? The hail and the sea, the parting of the sea. Oh, and the locust. He lifts up the sword and there's no fight going on. God just brings a plague. The same posture is seen and then the sea separates. He could have done that. He could have just separated the Amalekites, right? But there's a human responsibility here as he's training them for the promised land. I'm training you to walk in my ways in obedience. And there's going to be times when you have to, so to speak, put your hand to the plow or take the sword in your hand. But you never do it apart from the banner of God underneath the sense of God as I am warring. And where where does spiritual warfare happen? Mostly here and here. That's where a lot of spiritual warfare happens. 
Now, there's a reality, just like it plays out on the battlefield. Our prayer, our worship, our intercession, they have consequences in earthly realms. And I think if we take nothing else away from the story, I don't want to read, I don't know exactly why God did it the way it is, but there's no doubt that what he's trying to get us to see is that spiritual putting God, the rod of God, and then he calls it the banner, Nisi, this that what's a banner? A banner is it's branding. It's it's a sense of I run to the banner as a military unit. You'd find your banner and you'd run to it. It's for whom we're fighting, who we represent. This is God and we serve him. We have to see the link between that and what's happening in the practical way. Because one of the themes that we hear in our society, we've I've heard it for decades now, and you will hear it more and more, is, well, it's fine to pray, but actually do something. It's fine to do your spiritual things, but actually let's do something real. The Bible says you don't just pray and don't just do that and say, well, that's nothing because there's definitely human responsibility. But if you think, well, let's do something and don't do all that God stuff, we're missing the point of the Scripture. God is real and active and wants to be God who acts in our world and acts in our lives. So that's, that's one. We just want to see that. As Moses takes this posture, one thing is different in this story versus the other three times we see him lift up the, the rod. And it's the necessity of perseverance. In the other times we don't hear that Moses was tired. I don't know how long it took from the time he raised it till the locust came or whatever. doesn't say, but it's, it wasn't an issue for the Bible writers, nor when the sea parted. We don't know, but it's definitely a part of this story. Moses got tired. Can I just tell you, if you've ever engaged in spiritual warfare, when your mind and your heart and your spirit is just wanting something that you know is not the best for you, but you desperately want it. It's wearying. And the battle keeps going on, and you feel like you're in a wilderness. You just feel tired. There is an endurance dimension, a perseverance dimension in this, that if he's trying to train us. And... We talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the way this entire scenario was to teach and train us to look at the people of Israel and the way they were acting. And I want to go back because it says, 1 Corinthians 10 says, look at what they did in the wilderness. And remember this, don't desire evil. Don't be idolaters like they were. This is Paul speaking thousands of years later, right? Be pure sexually. Don't put God to the test. That is, don't do foolish things to try to test God to see if he's real. There'll be enough need for him just by walking in his ways. Don't grumble against him. He's trying to train us of these things. And then it says, let's turn to it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is... We, we have to read this story because the Bible asks us to in light of 1 Corinthians 10, because it says this, this recorded 
for our benefits, for those of us who are living now. And then it says, and this is in line with this endurance and perseverance through spiritual warfare and getting tired of it. I don't know about you, I just get tired of sometimes just, ah. Keep walking with the Lord. Here's what it says. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to all people. But God is, what? Faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Many of us learn this verse, but this verse is in the context of the wilderness walking. That's what Paul is talking about prior to that verse. And that's what he's trying to teach the children of Israel. Persevere. God's not going to leave you. So, the reality and earthly consequence of the spiritual war, the tiring nature of it, and then finally, if we can't miss this, Aaron and her go up there, right? We need people. You know, I mean, this has been preached on and said, I'm sure if you've heard this verse preached on, you just can't ignore it, that we need people on either side of us when we get tired to help raise us up. And it was God's man. It was Moses. God works. He's again, he's training the people. I'm working through a godly leader in Moses, but he can't do it by himself. Have him sit down, give him a break, lift up his hands, support him. And in that, you're helping facilitate my victory. And as you build this altar, remember me. This idea of banners, we read about it. You read about it in Psalms. Read about it in Psalm 20 that we spoke today. Um, it's, it's Psalm 74.4 says, The enemies of God have roared in the midst of the meeting place. They've set up their own banners. Guys, the world sets up banners all the time that say, this is truth, right? This is what's real. We live in a world where those banners are going up, and they're better at marketing than we are. <laughs> Frankly, they are. However, the God of all ages, who has created all things, says this, Psalm 60, verses 4 through 6. I've given a banner to all who fear me that it will be displayed because of truth. Ultimately, God's banner to say there is truth, ultimate truth, not relative. There is truth beyond what we think and feel. We raise up a banner that says, come to Jesus. Come all you that are heavy laden. You're weary. You're tired of warfare. You're tired of being in the wilderness. Come to me, Jesus says, and rest. God loves you with an unfailing love, and he's held up a banner that says, run to me. Run to me for comfort. Run to me for rest. Find your identity in my camp, in my banner. Your prime identity is not in anything else but in him. And if it starts there, he'll work out the rest of it. He will. He loves you so much. And again, I think we have to see, and again, I don't, I'm not saying that Exodus is thinking this, but when we read in the gospel in the New Testament and he says, if I be lifted up, if, if, a, if a piece of wood gets lifted up, I will draw all people unto me. And the commentary from the gospel writer is, Jesus said this for the 
way he was about to die. And there's a piece of wood raised up. And it's a banner that says, run to this. All your sins are forgiven. All your guilt. All your shame. All the things that you hate. In my camp, they'll be gone. Because I died for you. I love you so much. I want to make brief mention as we close about chapter 18. It's a wonderful story. I read through it many, many times and just felt like I wanted to say one, two quick things. The story is right after this and they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Jethro, not an Israelite, a Midianite. Moses' father-in-law has been housing Moses' wife and children and he brings them back to Moses because of the wandering and we don't know the circumstances, but it says Jethro delivers Moses' wife and children back to him and then they have a conversation and they greet each other and they obviously have a good, it's great to have a good father-in-law. Any of you have father-in-laws? It's good. I love my father-in-law. He was an incredible support to me and, and, and Jethro was to Moses. And so as they share and Moses tells Jethro, all that's happened coming out of Egypt and just this amazing story. This says priest of Midian. So he had some spiritual life in what, however Midian ran their religious things. But there, there was no sense in this that he's a, a, a believer in Yahweh, that God necessarily. And yet, as Moses recounts for him what God has done in verse 11 of Exodus 18, we read this. Jethro says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. In other words, he says, God has delivered you. And the way Egypt's treated you and the Amalekites have treated you, God, I see the reality of God. So the first thing I just want to say is that Moses' simple recounting of what God had done paved the way for someone who was not in the elect, in the the chosen people to acknowledge. And we don't know what happened to Jethro's heart, or we don't, I'm not, I'm not speculating. I'm just saying he saw the truth of God through the testimony of Moses. I pray he would see it, I pray people would see it through me. Then we see the situation where Moses, who is the sole judge for this large group, Hundreds of thousands of people. So people would line up to bring their petitions before Moses. Speaking of that, we're bringing our petition for the planning commission on Wednesday for our building. Pray for us. They brought case after case. And Jethro, his father-in-law, looks at him and says, you get worn out, man. You're the only one here. And he gives him some wise advice to to break it down, to break, you know, give lesser matters to other people. And he gives them some advice. And it's very sound, and, and Moses takes the advice. I want to I just point two things out to you. I didn't see this, but several of the commentaries I wrote did, and I think it's a good point. Compare this story to the one we just heard. Look at some of the parallels in this. What we have is that 
men are chosen to do a certain task. Joshua chooses men and they go and Aaron and her come and support. Men are chosen. Moses sits down in both stories. One time on a rock, he's tiring and he sits down to hear in the judge's position. Moses gets tired in both stories because he's doing it all himself. People come in to help him and, and support him to do this. There's some parallels between these stories. But I want to just point out beyond that two things. Moses is a great leader, and one reason is he's teachable, humble, correctable. For all of us, and most everyone in this room at some level is leading, whether it's a family whether it's in a, in a relationship you have, you're the leader at work, you have people. Being teachable, humble, correctable, and not by, you know, somebody within the Israelite camp. This is his father-in-law. And he, he looks and he listens and he does. And God is teaching humility and dependence. He's teaching Moses and the people of Israel Be dependent on me. You need food, I provide. You need water, I provide. You need safe passage and victory in a battle, I provide. You're getting worn out because the tasks of your life are too much, I will provide. Come to me. Let people help you. And I'm preaching to myself, guys, because most of you know me think I just will. I'll do it myself. Strategy to be worn out, right? So if you, like me, let's repent together. Say, God, I, I, I need help, and I need you, and I need to run to your banner. I need to run to your cross, and I need to have other people around me to help support my faith. Guys, the world wants to, to take your faith away from you. The devil wants to have you not believe. And the banners of the world draw you away from God to truths that will... Say, I I can't reconcile what I believe with the banners of the world. Run to the banner of the Lord. Run to the cross. Run with others and see what he does. Pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your life in us. For your provision in the desert. The Lord our God, ever faithful. Lord, I thank you that the people of Israel to walk by faith. You are good. You are gracious. Thank you, Lord. And in all things, as we honor you, 